Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening. Heroes, it is said, are made, not born. I don't know anyone who hasn't been born, so perhaps heroes are born out of extraordinary circumstances. This is the purpose, if not the promise, of evil. For mankind to truly be free, they must be able to choose between something. The ability to choose between one opportunity or another, one dilemma or another, and the ultimate freedom is to choose between good and evil. The existence of evil offers us freedom and liberty that are at the root of our beings and distinguishes us from the rest of creation. Without evil, there would be no opportunity for mankind to develop some of its most admirable characteristics, like courage. If there is no evil, there can be no danger, and if there is no danger, there can be no extraordinary circumstances from whence heroes are born. When Flint, Michigan suffered from the benign neglect of those charged with keeping her safe for those who lived there, a set of cascading circumstances began to tumble down on Flint that shook lawmakers, government officials, citizens, children, and seniors from Lansing to Washington, D.C. Out of these chaotic circumstances comes a voice that speaks with clarity and calls us back to the values and virtue that make us proud. Heroes are examples of our better selves. They set the pace. They honor truth. And above all, they are courageous and undeterred. Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha is a physician, scientist, and activist who has been called to testify twice before the United States Congress, awarded the Freedom of Expression Courage Award by PEN America, and named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. She is also the author of a new book, What the Eyes Don't See. She is the founder and director of the Pediac Public Health Initiative, a model program to mitigate the impact of Flint water crisis so that all Flint children can grow up healthy and strong. Dr. Mona is a true American hero and our guest today on Food for Thought. Jerry and I return after some brief messages with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. Welcome back, everyone. It's Food for Thought here on WJR. Dr. Phil Knight here in the studio with Jerry Brisson, the CEO and president at Gleaners Community Food Bank, and also my board chairman at the Food Bank Council of Michigan. So, Jerry, welcome back to the studio. Always good to be here to keep an eye on you. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> well, our hands are full today because we have our uh, guest we've been anticipating now for several weeks, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, and she is... Um, so much to us and our work uh, and changing the conversation about food insecurity across Michigan. So, Dr. Mona, welcome to Food for Thought. It is great to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me. Well, I guess the first thing I'd like to do is dive into um, What the Eyes Don't See, which is your new book. 
and uh, it details a bit of your life and and also um, the Flint water crisis. And you know, I think back to the um, to the range of emotions that you must have felt as you discovered the water crisis and the effects it was having on uh, the citizens and particularly the children. And for, I, I almost compare it to the stages of grief. I mean, there's yeah. got to be unbelief and denial and anger and, and you know, and then back and forth like a tennis match. Is, is that kind of what you went through? Yeah, that is so spot on, Dr. Phil. So, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to give people a firsthand account into what what was happening. And you are, you know, reading the book from, from my perspective, and you are going through those many emotions, the absolute disbelief, how could this have happened? Mm. Uh, sheer anger, you know, this was preventable. How could this be done upon children who are already suffering from so much? And then really that anger that got turned into action and resolve. Uh, so there are a lot of emotions in this book. Um, it's, Oprah put it on her summer reading list, and she said it was a kind of a dramatic Grissom-like page turner, mm. uh, just because of kind of that that firsthand, personal, very human account of of what happened. Well, I, I that comes through in the book for sure, and um, you know, but I think that you saw, you said it just a moment ago that here's a group of children living in 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 Flint and in the area that are already going through so much difficulty. And food insecurity is right at the top of that list. And, you know, we think here at, at Food for Thought that if you're hungry, you only have one problem. I mean, you're worried about what you're going to eat and what are you going to give your kids. And, you know, this becomes normal for kids to live in that environment. And it's just heartbreaking to us, uh, the toxic stress that they're living and growing up under, thinking that it's normal. Yeah, you 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 actually got it, and that is that is the philosophy of how um, I practice pediatrics, and increasingly how most pediatricians um, see the health of children. We cannot be stuck in our very myopic view that health is only medicine and that we will take care of everything a child needs by prescribing them antibiotics or, you know, mm -hmm. completing their well-child visit and screening for hearing and vision. Um, so in pediatrics, I think the most important um, thing right now that's happening is the recognition of these toxic stresses that impact children's lives in a very graded and predictable way. And our Flint kids were rattled with these toxicities, just like kids all over this nation, all over Michigan, um, urban, rural areas. We mm -hmm. have kids who are waking up to poverty, to unsafe neighborhoods, to incarcerated parents, to racism, discrimination, and yes, food insecurity. Um, and all of these things impact a child's development, and all of these things leave lifelong scars. Hmm. So in, in my practice in Flint, we, you know, this is even before the water crisis, we very much realized um, that we were not doing enough when it came to, to nutrition. I would see my patients, and I would recommend um, oh, you know, you should be eating avocado and kale, and, and they would just absolutely stare at me. Um, like, where, where am I going to get this? Um, Flint has no full-service grocery stores. It is easier to go to a liquor store and a fast food place than it mm -hmm. is to get 
healthy, affordable nutrition. Mm. So it made us change the way we practice. Um, so often in, in medicine, we just prescribe things like do this, do that. And that wasn't working. Um, so in partnership with our community, we changed how we practice. So we actually, our pediatric clinic, which sees the most kids in Flint, we moved our clinic to a farmer's market. We're the only clinic of its kind in the country. We are co-located in a farmer's market specifically to address food insecurity. Food is literally medicine for a child's brain. Children need healthy, you know, accessible, affordable nutrition for their brains to grow. So we made the very deliberate decision, let's move where we practice to a place that children can get affordable nutrition. And now every kid that comes into our clinic, be it for an ear infection, a fever, or, a, you know, a well trial check, they get a prescription to go downstairs to the farmer's market, and it includes a $15 voucher to buy um, fresh fruits and vegetables. So we are changing the environment of care, and that's what we all need to be doing. We need to get out of our boxes, think creatively, and look at everything from nutrition to housing security to poverty to all these other things that impact the lives of children. You know, so this is a wonderful segue as we kind of finish this introductory segment and start thinking about what we're going to talk about next. So what I want to tee up is this. This is changing the conversation from sick care to health care, right? Which I know is a little bit cliche, but it's really important. And I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about how by your handling this in in the way you're handling it, you're actually helping these kids not only be healthy, but do better in school. I mean, the ripple effect of this attitude is significant, and it's part of the reason that we think hunger can be solved. So as we go into the next segment, I want to talk about those things. All right, we'll be right back. He's Jerry Brisson. She's Dr. Mona. I'm Dr. Phil, and we'll be back here on Food for Thought in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's Food for Thought here. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here in the WJR studio, and our guest, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. And uh, Jerry, you teed us up there at the end of the first segment, so uh, right back at you. Yeah, so changing the conversation. Now, that's the purpose of this radio show, is to change the conversation about food insecurity and why we think this is a solvable problem. So I want to connect the dots here just a little bit. What you just talked about in terms of even moving your practice to a farmer's market, right, and changing the conversation from sick care, which was giving the kids the antibiotics because they're sick, to health care, which is giving the kids the food they need so they stay healthy. That's a big deal. Talk a little bit more about how that evolved for you and how that conversation maybe changed in your own mind and then you started to take it out to the world. Yeah, I think so much um, as you practice medicine, um, that practice is very myopic. We are so accustomed to seeing the, the child in front of us or the patient in front of us and treating acutely what's happening, yet failing to open our eyes to what could be contributing to that. What are the upstream contributions to how that patient got there? Um, and this is a big part of my book is, is really recognizing um, the social, the economic, the environmental um, factors that contribute to the outcomes of, of any patient. Um, so it's really important for, 
for me, you know, as I progressed through my training in medicine, I really wanted to take a step back. Pediatrics, especially, so much of what we do with prevention. Uh, you know, we talk about we give immunizations and it's car seat safety and it's uh, healthy eating and all these all these things are prevention. It's not as much about the the child in front of us. It's about the potential of that child. Mm. Well, how are they going to be in five years, ten years, and fifteen years? That's so much of what we do as a pediatrician. But to to get that lens, that that's almost a different discipline. That's the field of public health. Uh, mm. Public health deals with that prevention and deals with really what happens at that population level. So personally, I went back to school after medical school, after my pediatric residency, I went back and got a master's in public health degree so that I can bridge these often, you know, isolated silos in the care of my patients. And the reason I came to Flint was really to integrate uh, pediatrics and public health uh, for the next generation of of pediatricians, the next generation of, of doctors, so that they understand all of these um, different disciplines that impact the lives of children. So yes, and, but it's increasingly happening. So you know, it's, it's an increasing kind of wake up and recognition. People all over are opening their eyes that you know, medicine it does not mean good health. Uh, there are so many other variables that impact good health. So like I said in my clinic which is co-located in the farmer's market, we also have a social worker. And just like we screen for, you know, hearing and vision and blood pressure, we also screen for poverty and, you know, and housing stability and all of these other social determinants of health, toxic stresses that impact the lives of our patients. And that's, that's happening more and more all over the place. But I think pediatrics has always kind of been ahead of the game because so much of what we do is already prevention. And can you say... What are some of the things you've seen as a result of this change that you've made in your practice? Yeah, so we, um, my pediatric public health initiative, which I direct, which is this um, multi-institution initiative with many community partners to improve the outcomes of Flint children, we actually have a team devoted to nutrition. And I have an amazing woman. She's a PhD, RD, MPH. So she is a public health nutritionist. She is from Flint. She is uh, leading all of these efforts to not only implement these uh, nutrition interventions, but also to assess them. So you ask what what I'm saying, and anecdotally, I could tell you, oh, you know, more kids are eating fruits and veggies, but we've actually assessed this work. Uh, Not only the nutrition prescriptions, we also have an integrated dietitian in our clinic, and we also now offer cooking classes in the farmer's market called Flint Kids Cook. So we've been able to, to evaluate this qualitatively and quantitatively, and it's it's awesome. Um, so kids are, are eating more fruits and veggies. Um, they understand the importance of healthy nutrition for their child development. Um, they now have less food insecurity. They have more access to healthy nutrition. Um, and we are, you know, it's not just about giving away food. It's also giving them the, the tools and the skills to, to continue this work at home. And with our cooking classes and our dietitian, we're making that happen. So, um, you know, it's many of these nutrition-based interventions that are are improving the the health and the nutrition of our children. You know, when we tell people we believe this is a solvable problem, what you've just described is why we believe it. Because smart people are doing smarter things. They're looking differently at the issue. They're taking action. They're learning that it makes a difference. And they're helping other people know you can do things differently and have a huge impact. And I I fundamentally believe those are the building blocks for even big, important societal change. 
I completely agree. And that is absolutely why I wrote this book. So the book is called What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Resistance, and Hope. And it is not just about Flint and what happened in Flint. Mm. It's about our, it's about injustices everywhere. And it is about our responsibility, no matter who we are or what we do or where we live, um, to open our eyes to these issues, to not accept the status quo, to realize that we have incredible power within us to make a difference in our communities. Um, so these are lessons for all of us. There's a lot of things that we think that we can't fix that are too big of a problem. It's childhood poverty, like, oh, that's too big of an issue. You know, elder poverty used to be a big issue. We enacted Social Security, and now that's not an issue. So, you know, there's other things like lead elimination or, or you know, housing insecurity, transportation access. We can fix these things. We just have to have the passion, the energy. We have to build those teams. We have to open each other's eyes. Um, and be creative. Well, I we say a lot here, Dr. Mona, that, you know, hunger's not bigger than we are, it's not better than we are, and it's not beyond us to solve. And I, you know, I love the President Obama quote that says, you know, we are the ones we've been waiting on. So yeah. there's no sense in us, you know, waiting for someone else to come along and fix this when, why not us? Why not now? Why exactly. can't we address this? Um, I've got to ask you, too, that, you know, uh, on your website, monahanaatisha.com, it it lists you both as a physician, scientist, and an activist. And I follow you on Twitter, so I know all of those things are true. Um, But I noticed, too, that you've been before the United States Congress to talk about, um, maybe it was the context of the Flint water crisis, but I think that that is indicative, of you just illustrated, of so many other issues that are plaguing our children and our seniors and, and working families. Um, what was that experience like, and do you feel like that you—I you, mean, Time Magazine has named you one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Were you able to move the policy uh, wonks there in D.C. And, uh, and, and get a hold of their hearts and minds? Yeah, I think so. So I've, I've made many a trips to D.C. And, and to the Capitol, not only testifying, but also advocating um, for Flint and, and for the resources that we need for our children to recover um, and thrive. And, you know, I, I've been really blessed and privileged and so lucky to have this amazing platform also with this book to not only mm-hmm. advocate for Flint kids, but for all our kids. So, you know, right. like I said, these stories are not isolated. There's kids everywhere waking up to the same toxicities. I literally took an oath when I became a doctor to protect um, children. I, I, and, and I continue to, you know, try to uphold that oath to make sure that our kids, um, you know, can succeed. But I would argue that we all took an oath. Um, you know, it is very much our, all of our civic and human responsibility uh, to care for each other and provide for each other. So it's not just me as a doctor, it's, it's everybody who's, who has to raise these issues. Um, but I have been blessed with this amazing platform that I will continue to use and be loud and be stubborn and persistent as long as I can to, to hopefully, you know, improve the lives of as, as many kids as I can. Well, maybe we're going to add that little part to our saying about it's not bigger, better, or beyond us to solve. Maybe we're just more stubborn than hunger is. <laughs> Wasn't it loud, persistent, and stubborn? We're going to add that, yeah. Yeah, I I like that. Well, you got two two out of three of those already, Jerry. Hey, let's take a quick break, pay a few bills, and come back with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here. We'll be back in just a moment. You come back and be with us. 
You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. We're back here. Food for Thought, WJR, Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. We're with Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. Dr. Mona, um, I can remember at the outset of the crisis sitting in a room with uh, Jim Ananick, Senator Jim uh-huh. Ananick, who's been a guest on the show. And uh, at that time, uh, John Roberts, who was the budget director for the state of Michigan. And there's probably, I don't know, 30 people in the room. We were meeting in the Capitol, and it was like, how are we going to get the food that helps mitigate lead exposure to the people and everything? And, you know, 30 people in a room can get nothing done slower and faster than anything. And I finally just let out a huge sigh and and uh and Jim elbowed me and John Roberts said uh, what is it Phil I said just get out of the way <laughs> because the food bank of eastern michigan delivers to 100 different locations within the city of flint every week if not every day yeah. we do this all the time and um We've been privileged at the Food Bank Council of Michigan to be the conduit for the state to work through to work with our food bank there in Flint, the Food Bank of Eastern Michigan, under the leadership now of Kara Ross. And uh, I I just have to applaud them for how they've uh, served the people of Flint during and continue as we move through the crisis. I completely agree. Uh, You know, this crisis, especially at the onset, really um, shared with me the value of some incredible nonprofits. Uh, the United Way, you know, mm-hmm. handled our water delivery. The Red Cross got all the volunteers organized. And it was our food bank that was so, it was part of the team, getting people the food they needed, also helping with the, the cases and the truckloads of water that was coming in, especially early on. And they continue to be a partner hand-in-hand in all of our recovery efforts. Uh, the leadership has been phenomenal. Uh, they have been so organized and so responsive. Flint is a small, big city. It's, it's you know, it's not like right. Detroit. You know, I lived, I worked in Detroit for about ten years at the Children's Hospital there, and um, it's it's just massive. And sometimes there's just too many folks at the table. But Flint, everybody knows everybody, and everybody <laughs> works together really seamlessly. Um, and the food bank continues to be. Um, a, a critical partner in all of our efforts. And nutrition in, in this crisis, um, we can't really underplay the role of nutrition uh, in, in lead everywhere. So, there, you know, kids in urban areas um, are, have higher rates of lead exposure. So kids in Flint had higher rates of lead exposure even before this, just like kids in Detroit and Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia. And it's because of you know, poor housing stock because of their environments they live in, but it is also because of pre-existing poor nutrition. When you are deficient in certain nutrients or you have an empty stomach, you absorb lead more readily. Hmm. Um, and then in the long term, um, after being exposed, you know, lead ends up being stored in your bones. And when you have poor nutrition in the future, it can come back out of your bones and cause that neurotoxicity all over again. So, so good nutrition, affordable, accessible, healthy nutrition is a lifelong solution here. We always need to have access to great nutrition. And, and the food bank, like I said, continues to be that stable, 
credible, trusted partner in the community. And one of the things that you talked about when we were off air was how they are um, part of your food pharmacy program. And so talk a little bit about that program and how it works. Yeah, so every child, and actually now adults that come to our, our Hurley uh, Medical Center clinic, uh, not only, for example, in our clinic do we give them a prescription to shop at the farmer's market, but we are also asking them specific questions, screening questions that are national validated questions about food insecurity. Um, you know, how, how much food do you have, you know, for the rest of the week? Um, you know, do, do you have periods where you go hungry? So there's certain questions that prompt, yes, this family has you know, significant issues with food security. So then they get an additional referral to um, our food pharmacy, which is in partnership with our food bank, where they get um, a box of food that lasts them for about a week or so. So not just, you know, we're not just addressing the, the, you know, the one-time, you know, fruits and veggies at the farmer's market, but also the the longer-term food needs that our patients uh, have. And I so so much of this ties into the ultimately where we think we we're going to have to go as we imagine what the safety net needs to be. The safety net can't just be, oh, my God, I ran out of food. Now, how am I going to get help? The safety net has to be more holistic in its thinking to say, can we predict when people are going to run out of food? Can we make sure they have the food before they run out of it? And for yeah. it's all the reasons that you're saying, it actually saves us all a lot of money if yeah. we do it this way, right? It's it's not something that just costs money. It actually yeah. saves a lot of money. So if we put on the hat of who wins when this problem is solved, taxpayers win in a big way when we take a holistic view of this and people stay healthier longer. And what you said about the toxicity that comes back from the lead that's stored in the bones, I mean, we didn't know that 20 years ago. So this is the kind of data and information that makes us stronger and better and more capable of taking this holistic view so that we can actually spend less and get more for it. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're we're also trying to take this in a a very big picture, um, including improving um, the the delivery of that food. So in Flint, we also now have mobile grocery stores. Uh, In the city that built cars, transportation is one of the biggest barriers our families um, have to get what they need. So we have um, now grocery stores on wheels that are helping families with access. We've also significantly expanded through many community partners um, urban farming efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, how to make sure that we can grow and, uh, you know, safe, accessible, healthy food for our families. So it takes a, a, a bigger lens to address these complicated issues. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's this idea of taking, uh, you know, eating the elephant, right, one bite at a time. And, you know, to look at it holistically, but at the same time, turn those thoughts into actions, and learn from those actions. They don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have the perfect plan. We can continue to get the data and learn and improve and adjust. And that's what you're doing in your practice. And, um, and I'm pretty excited because I'm, I'm taking Jerry to a meeting in a couple of weeks with the, uh, with the medical society here in, um, in, in, uh, in Michigan, there in Lansing. Right. And, um, What's really cool for me is that they invited us to come, 
It, right. Normally, I'm trying to bark, knock the door down, and get in, you know, and right. and talk about this concept of food first within our social programming, and and you're talking about a screening tool there, and I I really want to see the day where all of our social programming includes that into their their interview process right. in, in the medical world, in the social yep. service world, Absolutely. where we're, we're screening for food security. Absolutely, I completely agree, and we need to. Um, expand the, the safety net programs. Uh, another thing that's been really successful in Flint is the expansion of Double Up Food Bucks, where food assistance dollars have, have gone double. Uh, that's been huge. But we also need to think about the bigger programs like WIC. Like, why can't mm-hmm. WIC go to the age of 10? You know, why can't we get more benefits of WIC? Like, if we know that, that food is, is, is brain medicine, you know, why aren't we investing in all these other nutrition-based things? And we know they've worked. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's really important to keep putting out there is that there are a lot of things that actually have worked. And so we need to make sure that we're letting people know they've worked. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't opportunities to make things better. It doesn't mean we don't want to even be more efficient or better at service delivery. But there are a lot of things that have worked. So the better we can understand and describe that, um, communication is so critical to every significant change. And so your book, which is how we started this whole conversation, has been such an important tool for all of us to see the world differently. Hmm. Right. Yeah, that's the whole point of the title, What the Eyes Don't See. It's yeah. about... Yeah. It's about people, problems, and places we choose not to see, and it's a rallying cry for all of us to open our eyes. Dr. Mona, we're about out of time here, but I want to make sure to give you the last word, and uh, that means, Jerry, you don't get it. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks so much for being on Food for Thought, and really thanks for how you're investing your one handful of life and the difference that you're making in the lives of children, in the community, and everybody in between. Thank you so much. It's an, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you guys, and I thank you for your efforts. We are all part of the same village, and we just need to work together more, and I'm, I'm so optimistic about, about the future. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, author of What the Eyes Don't See, and our friend and partner in this great work to create food security across the state. Dr. Mona, thanks for being with us. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry, uh, Dr. Mona. We didn't have her in the studio. I wish we could have because her energy just comes right through the microphone. uh, And what a powerful, dynamic force for good. No question about it, and a privilege to talk with her today, um, and to really give you know everyone listening a chance to see how we connect the dots on all this stuff. I mean, she did such a great job of describing the practical programs that she's put in place at her clinic that address these holistic issues that families have, and she gave us some idea of the successes that that creates for the community and for the people that she treats by having a more holistic approach and and you just i mean again break things down into chunks that are digestible and you can see that these problems can be solved and she is setting an example for all of us in terms of her hope and her commitment and her resolve to do the right things to measure the outcomes to know they work and to you know help others do the same 
So what I really found interesting about this is uh, what she's doing in her clinic and how she moved her practice physically to so that people would have better and more access to healthy, nutritious food. So for a doctor to be to go to that time and trouble expense and in order to do that is done under the conviction of food first. Right you are. I mean, and to say I'm not going to achieve all the results I should have in the health of my patients if I don't make some changes myself. I can't stay in my comfort zone in my nice little office that's disconnected from anything. I'm going to have to put myself right in the community so that when they come to see me, they can also get the things they need to be healthy that aren't antibiotics. So, you know, some time ago we had um, uh, a guest on to talk about ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood experiences. And, um, Food insecurity is at the top of that list, particularly in Dr. Mona's eyes, when she said that um, food is brain medicine. So a child without the access, without a food-first context that, that permeates our entire social programming, without access to that healthy, nutritious food, that child will never have the opportunity to become who and what they could be. Well, and so it's the fundamental basis of what we do, right? I mean, we are all about, you know, making sure that this issue is addressed or taking hunger off the table, if you Mm -hmm. will, so that people can move on to success in their life. And we know that people will be less successful if this issue isn't addressed. So, you know, she's able to describe that in medical terms and in what happens to kids in their growth and development as she watches them get access to these services that they didn't have before. You know, and what that does, Jerry, when I think about children who don't have access to healthy, nutritious food, for whatever the reason, and I don't really care what the reason is, to be candid with you, I don't care if it's neglect of someone who's responsible or just an economic issue. I don't care what the reason is. What bothers me is that it's fundamentally unfair. Right. It sets the playing field in the wrong way so that not everyone can be as successful as anyone else. It's as unlevel as it can possibly be. And there's enough other factors in life that affect that, but it's But food should not be one of those. Access to healthy, nutritious food should not be one of those. So it's hard for healthcare to take on an issue as big as food insecurity because they're not sure where their responsibility should start and end. And I think what Dr. Moan is doing is help to set those limits and say, well, maybe we maybe we don't know where our responsibility in healthcare should start and end, but here's a concrete approach that's not doing nothing because we don't know everything, right? It's doing something <laughs> even though we don't know everything. And that's going to help us frame ultimately how much of this issue is healthcare really responsible for if it's doing its job and moving from what we talked about earlier, sick care to health care? And I think that's hopeful. I think that as we can frame these issues better and say, look, we don't expect anyone to tackle this whole issue. But mm-hmm. for those who benefit when the problem is solved, they should be tackling some of the issue. So how much is some? That's a good question, and that's the kind of thing we'll have an answer to because of, well, Dr. Mona's book and work.
Yeah, what the eyes don't see. And, you know, the, the context of that book is we need to open each other's eyes. And she talked about it off air a little bit that, you know, having some of the people who are recipients of the services the food banks uh, provide through your network of pantries across the state, some 3,000 of them now, to have some of those people in. You know, it just reminds me of the show we did a couple of weeks ago where we accounted for 97% of the people that we serve. 47% of them are employed, 25% of them are children, 19% of them are seniors, and 6% of them are homeless. That's 97% of the people that you're serving in your network as well as the rest of the Food Bank Council. Right. Absolutely right. Good memory. I'm proud of you. Yeah, well, you broke it down. I, You know, I don't hear good, but I listen well. So, well, it's time for just a little bit of food for thought here. Leadership is defined as influence. Nothing more and nothing less. Oswald Sanders said that. The true test of leadership is to create positive change, because anybody can wreak havoc. And Dr. Mona is a leader. She is an influencer. And she has chosen to invest her one handful of life tackling big, huge problems and not just talking about them, but doing something. She goes after this big, huge problem of hunger and food insecurity with an undeterred belief that it can be solved. And so do we. Jerry and I and our network at the Food Bank Council of Michigan believe unwaveringly that hunger is not bigger than we are not better than we are and it is not beyond us to solve we can do this and we can do it together thanks for listening you can catch all our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org you can follow me on twitter at drphil14 and until next week remember it's food first folks food first Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.